Last night, we went over lots and lots of details. If you want the slides, um, feel free to send an email to me, Jennifer Kunzen. My name with nothing else, Jennifer Kunzen at Yahoo. So it's my name at Yahoo. Um, because last night, what we covered was all the basics of what is addiction, uh, basically any kind of addiction, what are the primary uh Aspects that have to be there to actually have an addiction diagnosis. Actually, I don't use the word addiction in the new DSM. They use the word use, and it, on various levels, mild to moderate to severe. So uh, the word we're most familiar with is the word addiction. I will use it to address the field overall. So we talked about the different pieces, which addiction has to include um, you know, I'm not even going to redo it. Let's, I'm not even going to make it up. Let's, let's pull it up. Okay, never mind. Addiction, basic definition, any use. So what we're covering this weekend is any kind of use. Gambling, shopping, sex, food. Those are behavioral addictions to drugs and alcohol. So this is um, substance as well as behavioral. Taking longer and larger amounts than intended. Unsuccessful desire to cut down or control use. Spend a great deal of time obtaining and using craving, using the results, uh, use results and failure to fulfill major obligations. So, in other words, use, not use, use results in a failure to fulfill major obligations, continued use even after social and personal problems, recurrent use despite physical hazards, tolerance, and withdrawal. So, just to start off this morning, that is what we're talking about when we're talking about addiction. This is the DSM diagnoses basically has to do with you keep using even though negative stuff is going on and uh, even though you're having problems in your marriage, problems in your family, problems in your life, problems on your job, you keep using, you're increasingly using more. Using, I use the word use to describe any kind of use. Um, pornographic use to cocaine. So all of the above. Okay? So back to where we are. So I'm a doctor of psychology. I have, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm a certified chemical dependency counselor and a certified sex therapist. In, my, in the work I do with chemical dependency, I see people in my office, in my private practice. I work, I teach chemical addiction, addictions, and then I run uh, the supervision of all the therapists in a rehab. So I've got my fingers in a few places. So I thought we'd start off with something fun. Oh. <gasps> 
It's just, I just kind of uh, look. Look, I think I can explain this. Thank you. Joe is a sex addict. <laughs> what? No, I'm not. It's okay. It's good. It's a disease. <laughs> no, I am not a sex addict. Yes, you are. That's the only way to explain all this stuff. No, it isn't. No, it's not. Because you could also explain it with the truth. Well, what is the truth? Yeah, what, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> I slept with Monica. <laughs> well, let's, let's see what everybody thinks of that. <laughs> oh, no. You slept with my sister? Uh, yes, but it was, we just did it once uh, in London. This is not good for my rage. <laughs> <laughs> Of course it's true. How else would you explain all the weird stuff that's been going on? Yes, it's true. Okay, but if it only happened that one time, how can we found your underwear in our apartment the other day? Ah, uh, oi. That was the underwear I was wearing that night okay. in London. Right, Monica? <laughs> I guess I wanted to keep it. <laughs> As a souvenir. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, the lies, and then they just keep telling them. If you keep watching the scene, the lies just keep, right? Now, I don't watch Friends, but I take it they're in a relationship and they don't want to tell everybody. But the reality is, uh, disc we're, we're seeing a couple different pieces to what happens with addiction, and they're put in a very funny way. You've got confrontation, you've got the moment of discovery. You've got the lies that go around it, and they go on on the different ways that they explain their behaviors, and they actually use addictive terms multiple times in the rest of the scene. You got him pulling out his, his medication. <laughs> what is he using his medication for? Anger. Right? Right? So, you know, uh, the, a lot of what addiction is about is monitoring emotion. Um, that when we don't learn and develop, so I view addiction from a developmental lens, meaning oftentimes what happens is development gets arrested at a certain age, and so what you'll see is behaviors into, in adulthood that are like, gosh, what's that about? Well, there's some emotional development that should have happened in a secure, attached uh, parenting relationship that didn't happen, and so those, those abilities never matured. And so I've got a 60-year-old individual in my office, and the way he deals with his emotion is like a 12-year-old. Well, what happened around that time, parents got divorced, life fell apart, emotion never, solid emotional development and attachment didn't occur. So that's a development class in about 0.2 seconds. But basically, you do have all kinds of different uses of addiction to really monitor emotion, to manage emotion. People use addictive processes to manage emotion, and then the use becomes compulsive, and then it just becomes this habit that is very, very hard to break, and then it destroys relationships and so on, and then you've got that cycle that goes on. So um, we are going to look at some of the physiological effects of substance abuse particularly today. Um, so long-term effects of meth use. We're just going to look at a couple just to give you 
an idea of some of the impacts that are happening. Um, with long-term meth use, you will end up with psychosis often, paranoia, hallucinations, repetitive motor activity. That's actually why, so the people that come into the rehab that I work at, um, they often have psychotic symptoms, and they'll go see, and they'll go get a uh, diagnosis, and they'll say, this is somebody with schizophrenia, it's somebody with da-da-da-da-da, but the reality is when you're in the middle of use, it'll look like a mental health diagnosis when actually it's the drugs, and so we're going to talk about that when we hit um, co-occurring on the last class. Uh, it does change the brain structure and function. Um, I remember my first interaction was really in right after college. I was running a singles ministry and meeting some different young men who were in their 20s who had a challenging time keeping a conversation, uh, uh, definite deficits in communication. Well, they'd had already at their early 20s about 10 years of drug use that had really inhalants, which is one of the worst, um, huffing, one of the worst, and it destroys brain cells. So it affects people's cognitive abilities. So you'll see that with changes in brain structure and function, meth in particular really destroys uh, brain function. Deficits in thinking and motor skills, very distractible, um, memory loss that can be permanent uh, depending on the length of use. So this comes up in my supervision groups where my, um, the training therapists are like, I can't tell if he's had problems with learning since he was 10, 12, and he has a learning disorder, or if this is because of his drug use. But he has a hard time uh, remembering things. He has a hard time communicating. Sometimes it is hard to tell uh, which it is. Is it the drugs or is it the fact that this person actually had these difficulties before the drug use? Um, you will see, especially in the middle of meth use, aggressive and violent behavior, mood disturbances, severe dental problems, and weight loss. Um, I got this today. Someone, one of our members gave us this. So aggressive and violent behavior. So I worked with a couple that came to me for marital therapy, and this is kind of typical when people are in the middle of use. They go for individual. We're going to talk about all the different forms of treatment later today, and individual treatment is absolutely key to recovery. But often the needs in the marital and family relationship are huge. However, it's rather hard for somebody in the middle of their addiction to receive marital and family help when they haven't actually recovered individually. So often what happens is, and it's just funny, it's like this two-year thing. People come in at about two and three years to get marital help. So when I see people right out of a revelation of use, um, it's pretty hard for them to do both individual and couple together at the same time. However, uh, so like this couple that I saw, they, uh, they had both been meth users. She was clean for, uh, they were both clean for two years no, she was a little bit longer, and but he had um, he'd actually relapsed about two months before on a one-time basis, but his meth use had led to very aggressive and very violent behavior sexually and otherwise with her, and he didn't remember any of it. Um, the children had actually seen it. So meth, under the use of meth, a lot of terrible things can happen, and that doesn't come up until we talked about that last night, that the first couple of years of recovery are actually just as traumatic as the use period because of the level of stuff that's coming up. 
memories of the violent and aggressive behavior and so on. Uh huh. Um, so if you're, if somebody's focusing on the marital counseling, then is that a way for the addict to avoid dealing with So that's, that's the challenge of combining the two. Best care is individual plus family or individual plus couple. That is best care. However, if you're going to see somebody, you need to see somebody who knows how to handle that balance and who knows how to notice those kinds of things. Because, yes, people will actually use a focus on, well, you know, if we just communicated better, I wouldn't drink. If we just communicated better, I wouldn't go and, and overeat. If we just communicated better, I wouldn't. So, yes, people will actually use the marital relationship to take the focus off of their use. And so a good therapist is going to catch that and keep them focused on their recovery while they're working with you as a couple or a family. But it's very tricky. It's very tricky to do that because um, both are true. It actually is true that the communication problems create some problems, but you just can't blame the use on it. So it's, it's a very tricky balance. Um, so... Somebody asked for pictures, and I had put this in. These are actual pictures. So here she is, how she starts. You see the progression. And this is, woof. So this is when she's actually in the process of getting better. But it literally meth, meth destroys the tissues of the body. So it, it destroys the teeth. You actually don't even see her teeth. I could put that picture up too, but uh, it destroys the teeth, it destroys the skin, it destroys the hair, all the tissues of the body. Okay, oxycodone. Oxycodone creates liver damage, breathing problems, difficulty with swallowing, sleep issues, respiratory issues, circulatory problems, blood pressure, headaches, shock, and then death. So what's happened in Poway is... Um, like, for instance, they were doing a presentation at a different high school, and the death had happened in Poway a couple weeks before. And this is the, the uh, police squad that I told you about last night. They were investigating, and initially the death was, they actually didn't know uh, what the death was. It was a teenager in one of the high schools. And they, I forget what their original belief on the death was, but the squad then came in and checked things out and said, have you checked the attic? And they're, they're like, why? So they check the attic and they find um, foil, a squares of foil. Um, oxycodone doesn't show up in the blood, most of the blood tests that they do. So that's why they hadn't caught that this was an overdose from oxycodone because most of the blood tests have to do with all the other more common drugs. And oxycodone was just coming into play a couple of years ago. And so that's when they realized his death was by overdose. He'd been doing oxycodone, and they used the squares of foil to uh, boil it and then to ingest it, so smoke it, so inhale it. So it's a little hard to tell. There's actually more deaths by oxycodone than we know because some of the tests aren't done post-mortem. So very, 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 very damaging to the body. Alcoholism. Ooh, Lots of stuff. Impaired judgment, blunted affect. That means that the face doesn't express much. Poor insight, distractibility, cognitive rigidity, which means uh, very difficult being flexible in their thinking, 
reduced motivation majorly affects motivation in life, and that's what's actually tough because if somebody's in the middle of alcohol use, it's a little hard to tell. Is this depression that's causing the lack of motivation, or is it the alcohol causing the lack of motivation? Very challenging. And then deficits in the working memory, uh, destructibility, and sequencing. So you can actually um, – so I'm, I'm, I'm trained in neuropsychology and, and the um, – all the tests that they do to figure out where your cognitive abilities are. And when you work with somebody who's in years of alcoholic use and you give them typical tests that are for somebody who's had brain damage, their scores score very similarly to somebody that's had a a traumatic brain injury from either a car accident or from the military, explosives during uh, war. So um, very, very much uh, all of the drugs, this could actually be a list from almost all of the drugs of use. It affects executive functioning. Um, that's actually what we just did. Problem solving is the second bullet there. The ability to pay attention and the ability to put things in order. So that's one of the cognitive tests that you tell. One of the things that happens when drug use has gotten where it's affecting brain functioning is, um, okay, I want to do this and then carrying it out, that sequencing behavior. Like, I think this thought, like I'd like to accomplish this, but then the process of actually getting to accomplish that becomes very difficult because the cognitive abilities are impaired. The the ability to sequence is impaired. Um, Yeah. Yeah. How long does it take to see those changes in a person that has alcohol? Right. For all uses, uh, some of them are permanent. It depends on the level of use and the number of years of use. However, the brain is incredibly resilient as well. So for some, they can actually go to full recovery. So there's, there's a plethora of differences there. Basically, also the damage, if the damage is done young, if kids start at 10, 15, those ages, um, basically research shows you that if people start use and addiction at 19, they'll actually recover much better. If they start addiction at 12, 15, um, these, are, these are parts of the body that are still developing and behaviors get set pretty deeply. Um, full recovery, both in the body and in executive functioning and all of those, becomes much more difficult when they start young. Yeah. Thank you. I did, right? We did. They're my helpers. Wouldn't this be sad? So. Alcoholics show a disproportionate effect in gray and white matter. So uh, when you look at neurons, uh, the gray matter is the big part of the neuron. That's the outer part. The white matter is the axon. The myelination is the white uh, like sheet of material that protects the communication down the neuron. Well, the challenge with certain drugs, especially alcohol, is it actually damages both. So, um, so it's, it's damaging the actual tissues that control and then all the tissues that send the messages throughout the brain. So that's why the damage can be quite huge to the brain with drugs and alcohol uh, in a greater way than behavioral addiction. So this is one of, the, one of the differences is you definitely have effects in the system, in the body system with behavioral addictions. However, drug and alcohol addictions have a much more physiological and brain and neurological impact. Yes. So let's say somebody starts looking at porn or starts developing a sexual addiction at that, those ages. Yes. You say it can affect them physiologically. 
Uh, mostly what it affects is arousal patterns. So we actually don't have any physiological proof of anything connected with pornography use. However, you'll see arousal patterns hugely affected. For instance, the research study that I ran on sex therapy, these were a totally different issue, but these were men who'd been, um, some of the individuals in the study, the men had been molested. A handful of the men had been molested. Uh, it's much higher with women. The men who had been molested more than just a touch, like where there had been sexual um, penetration and uh, rapes involved when they were young, they had erectile difficulties as an adult. So that's actually, there's very, very little research on that. I've got one of the few studies that actually connects the two. It's what you call correlational. So we know that stuff that happens early on behaviorally affects what happens then biologically, although, of course, sex is involved in so many different realms, not just biology. So we know uh, by correlation that certain things that go on with um, behavioral sexual addiction practices are reflected in adulthood because it has more to do with the emotion regulation of the body more than actually chemical substances. So it's super intertwined. You do have um, dopamine responses in the brain that are affected by early use. So this age alcohol is an interaction. This age alcohol is an interaction also was present in other brain structures, including the corpus callosum, the hippocampus, and the cerebellum. The cerebellum controls your motion. Okay, so what you'll notice with uh, people who have been in long-term use with alcohol and certain other drugs is the cerebellum is actually affected, which means that's where you get the motor tics, where there's difficulty walking. You know, see people on the streets and they have difficulty moving. Sometimes that's due to actually drug use. Sometimes it's actually used to their medication. Um, so... This is all from MRI research. So I just want to read this to you, okay? A 63-year-old male attorney presented with leg weakness. He comes to his medical doctor. He's not seeking help for anything else. He comes for leg weakness that's gradually worsening for a year. Initially, he noted the weakness and steadiness upon getting up from a chair and climbing the stairs. Over the next few months, this is an actual case, his gait became increasingly clumsy, his hands and tongue started to shake, and he noted it was difficult to comb his hair and dress himself. He denied any numbness, voice changes, or hearing loss. Past medical history was significant for well-controlled hypertension. And hyper so he's not having those issues. Medications included lots of stuff. Mike could probably tell us about all of those. Uh, the patient was an avid runner. Okay, this is somebody who's physically active. Active runner, tennis player. He admitted to consuming about five to ten alcohol-containing beverages nightly for the past 15 to 20 years, but denied any medical or social problems related to his drinking. Physical examination was remarkable for these contractures of the fourth and fifth fingers. So he's had, he actually has problems with these two fingers, Neurological examination was notable for moderately decreased vibration sense over both feet. So the vibration ability of the body to pick up the feeling of vibrations was changed in his feet. Symmetrical extending up to the ankles decreased. Coordination testing revealed finger-to-nose, heel-to-knee-shin testing. So he's having problems with coordinating his movement and inability to tandem walk. 
Okay? He's, he's walking like this instead. So his motor functioning is hugely affected. Um, demonstrated a marked loss of balance when his feet were together and was asked to close his eyes. Okay, so your typical test when somebody's actually in use when they're pulled over by a cop. Uh, nystagmus, which means that's the uh, running of the nose. Nerve pathology was found except for the tongue, so they're not sure why he's having tongue problems, but they're noticing it. Motor strength was tested and was normal for other areas. So this was his, uh, if you see a neurologist, this is what they're going to discover. Liver functioning test showed elevation of this lovely piece there, so that's when you're knowing. Okay, we went from the normal liver to the fatty liver to the cirrhosis, so they're already seeing that process. Um, I want to pay attention to the brain demonstrated, so MRI, brain demonstrated moderately severe cerebral atrophy. Okay, so the brain had shrunk in certain areas of the brain. Nerve conduction testing was consistent with peripheral neuropathy, which means that the extremities of the body are having trouble feeling things. Based upon clinical history and brain imaging, diagnosis of alcohol, cerebral degeneration, cerebral is the part right back here that controls the motor functioning, and peripheral neuropathy was made. The patient was started on a supplementation and counseled on the importance of complete abstinence from alcohol to prevent progression. He stopped alcohol consumption, and his weakness in ataxia remained stable without further deterioration. He didn't get better. He was too far along, but he did not continue to deteriorate. So... This is just an example of the biological effects of use. Now, I could use a similar case study on each of the different addictions. But particularly, it's important to note, for those in the middle of use, this is the impact physically. And it's important for those of you helping those. Um, alcohol consumption, it's, it's legal. So it's hard to put your finger on how bad it is. It is the biggest drug of use, and it's the biggest drug that causes problems above every other drug out there because it's sneakier, because people do it at parties. You know, it's okay in our culture. We have, you know, alcohol commercials at every football game. So it's a sneakier because it's so socially acceptable than most of the illegal drugs out there. Medical complications. There you go. Liver damage, malnutrition, pancreatitis. I didn't even show those pictures, what happens to the pancreas. Yeah, blackouts, lower inhibitions, impaired judgment, memory lapses, distorted vision, slowed reflexes, poor judgment. And then lifestyle. Loss of a job, loss of a car, loss of children, loss of home, loss of relationships. And then you get a, D a DSM diagnosis. Yes? Does the liver regenerate? Uh, the liver can get better. It depends on how far it's gone, you know. My very personal example is I'm sitting with my sister in, in a restaurant. We're talking, and she said, um, so I went in, and he, you could actually see my liver. It was actually protruding. It was sticking out. She is now where it's no longer protruding, uh, but she's at an advanced liver disease, even though they were able to slow things down. So the liver is amazing. It's quite regenerative. My brother actually gave half his liver to his wife, and she, ha she has... Uh, Hepatitis. And they're both alive and doing amazing because the liver will actually regenerate. So it's, a, it's a quite amazing, but it can get to a point where it can't. So it just kind of depends on how bad it is. That's where you end up with cirrhosis. Cirrhosis can actually improve, but most of the time, no. So once it gets to the point of cirrhosis, which that's the pictures we showed yesterday, 
very, very challenging to bring things back. These are a little challenging to look at. Uh, this is why they tell women not to drink while they're pregnant, because a small amount of alcohol can actually cause fetal alcohol syndrome. This is actually what you'll see in the face, uh, the nose, the ears. It, these are very typical physiological uh, things that you'll see in a child who was uh, born with the fetal alcohol syndrome. This is what it actually looks like in a child. So these are not looks that are due to their racial background. This is actually due to the fetal alcohol syndrome. And so you'll see the, the different pieces that it's talking about here in these, you know, young faces. So alcohol is very damaging uh, to the body as well as to the fetus, as well as to the life, as well as to the future. So, all right. So... What are some pieces that affect prevent that you can prevent um, uh, addiction use, and then what are some of the risks? So we're going to look at both. Eighty percent of children of alcoholics don't become alcoholics themselves. Okay, that's really important. That that might describe many of you. Again, I grew up with an alcoholic parent, and I didn't. Um, it's interesting in my family. Huh? Six kids, one did. So we're almost exactly that statistic. But that's not a statistic. I don't want. I I wish my sister wasn't the twenty percent. You know. But um, so this is the resiliency factors that we talked about last night, Wolin and Wolin's research on the five resiliency factors. Um, so prevention is how is, is the goal of prevention is preventing the transmission of substance abuse intergenerationally. Uh, also, it's about preventing relapse. So somebody comes in and you teach relapse prevention. So that term prevention is used for those who have not yet used uh, so that you can stop the intergenerational flow and for those who have come in with whatever the addictive use is, behavioral or substance, on how do you prevent relapse from happening. We're going to talk about relapse in a minute. And then preventing the development of serious drug abuse within the family. So meaning <clears throat> if brother does, will sister, and all those different relationships. So there are what you call three levels of prevention, and this is actually really important. When I work with individuals and families, I try to work at all three levels. So the intervention is for the individual and their family. That's called primary. Secondary is um, how to make sure things don't get worse. Tertiary is when you're dealing with the, um, the level of, this is put in terms of drinking, but the level of long-term use. So the goal in treatment is to deal with all three levels of prevention. So that's, this is one of the big things that come up. Okay, so how do you change things in a family? This kind of bleeds into our next class, but um, to, so that they don't end up sending things down. One of the biggest things is working on the parent-child relationship. So what happens if somebody has been in addictive behaviors and it's really messed up the family relationships, that's one of the big areas of treatment is to actually help with communication um, and all of the closeness and the intimacy in marital relationships as well as in uh, parent-child relationships. And then helping parents return to good discipline, good healthy discipline, because usually under use, discipline has completely gone out the door and there's no boundaries within the family. And then teaching communication. So those are... Those are, um, when you're dealing with families that are at risk, 
the, those pieces are in both preventative care and in treatment after use has begun. These are the kind of factors, let me come to that, that put people at risk. If there's high conflict within the family, if there's weak parent-child relationships, weak sibling relationships, family members that have problems with addiction, if they have an abusive, neglectful childhood, if there's also, this is our co-occurring in class five today, um, and then if they started at a young age. Yes? I was just going to say, um, when children are adults, yeah. then um, a lot of times the relationship can be severed. The yeah. child decides that they're going to go a certain way, and uh, so it, you can still put those into play, yeah. but not as aggressively. Like you can do discipline, but not in the same yeah, way. Yeah, it takes years. So the best book is by Stephanie Brown on alcoholic families in recovery, and she actually talks about that whole process of how to reintegrate the user into the family. That is like the best book out there, and it's pretty readable. She comes from a developmental lens. She's still actively practicing. Um, it's the best. It's a little hard to read because it's a little clinical, but it's a really great read uh, by Stephanie Brown, Alco Alcoholic Families in Recovery. It's it's a bit of a clinical read. Great book. Yes. Yeah. So and actually, that's quite common in the middle of use. And so that's why with families you have to do all the different layers of individual counseling for abuse as well as family counseling. Um, but sometimes the actual person who's done the abusing is no longer in relationship. And so there's, you have to see a specialist who knows how to deal with trauma. Um, what Yeah, and so that's actually very helpful that you can bring that into therapy, and, th and then it may never be that that person is actually involved in therapy, ever. Um, it just depends on the level of safety going on there. So um, what happens is I actually, I can't tell you the number of times, the couple that was meth users, both had been abused as kids. So my treatment for them was as the couple, but it was also she'd been abused by her dad, both sexually and physically, and dad was living in the home at the time that they were seeing me. So I was like, wah! Okay, so we've got so many levels of complication there. And so when you're treating somebody with both an abuse background and a use background, it is important to treat both. Or that they get concurrent treatment if they don't find somebody who can actually treat both at the same time. So these are just risk factors, okay? Lower income, socially things aren't well, there's not a lot of parenting, monitoring, there's low attachment, low involvement in family activities, um, they're not doing well in school, they hang out with bad influences, there's a lack of empathy in the family, impulsiveness, this is both if it's a teenager using or if it's an adult using, and then moral disengagement. So these are all different pieces. Again, send me an email, I'll send you the slides, but there are so many pieces that put people at risk. Um, <clears throat> the single greatest factor that helps people deal with use is connection. It's the single biggest piece. Notice how many of these have to do with connection. Lack of empathy, huge. Involvement in family, attachment to parents, social stuff. So half the factors have to do with connective relationships. We as a church family have the ability, we as Christians have the ability 
to create atmospheres where treatment can work really well because we can provide connection and safe boundaries, which is what we talked about last night. So that connection piece, I'm, I'm assuming and imagining that through therapy you, you negotiate what yes. that connection What safe like. connection looks like. Because obviously if connection is part of the recovery part period, but the person who is, is using is people shouldn't be in connection with them. Right. They're abusing those relationships. Right. right. And so actually that's where that balance is a tough balance on you have to put really clear boundaries up in certain relationships, right? And then how do you actually build connections? So a lot of times what happens is you actually have to sever all of their connections that they have and put them into a group where they can build connections and learn good connections in that group because now they have no contact with family because of all of the things that have happened. So connection can be built even when, to keep things safe, all of the family relationships have had to be severed, uh, at least temporarily, if not permanently. So, yeah, big time. So um, I'm not going to go there. I'm actually going to go through some of these just to uh, – we've got – there's special, there's special things um, that have to do with uh, wait, let me just tap. Okay, female population. <laughs> I love this. Nonsense. As long as you take it every day on schedule, you won't have to worry about addiction. So it is, <laughs> you know, there you go. Uh, you know, oh, you know. Okay, there's so many jokes about, um, especially uh, behavioral addictions. Oh, you know, everybody likes chocolate. You know, so somebody that goes and takes, you know, um, 12 donuts, and hides in the room and eats them when they're sad. That's a joke. We actually laugh about it, you know. And then they go and throw up, or they don't, and they, be, you know, gain weight. And so we don't deal with those behaviors uh, with women as seriously. Actually, there is a difference in gender treatments. That's important to notice. Women often begin substance use in response to trauma. So this is all use, whether it's substance or whether it's um, uh, behavioral addictions in response to trauma, such as physical or sexual abuse, childhood victim, uh, victimization, and domestic violence. Women are more likely than men to begin using a substance because their partners do. Uh, the most significant gender difference in, in use is found in physiological effects, mental health, and social stigma. It's much more, it's much, we, we have all the ads, if you watch all of the drinking ads on TV, who's drinking? The men. It is socially, real men, it is socially acceptable for men to drink. It's a social stigma for women to be alcoholics. It's socially unacceptable for uh, women to, to, to pig out, but all the men, if you'll see the commercials, they're like, you know, all the, all the food eaters, uh, what do you call them, the contestant winners, contestant winners <laughs> they're all male, right? So pay attention to the gender differences when it comes to different addictive behaviors. So there is a gender difference. Women become addicted faster. They experience withdrawal symptoms sooner. They experience uh, serious illness earlier. They have higher mortality rates, advanced rapidly in addiction, incur more brain damage than men. Are more men addicts or is it 50-50? Than male addicts. So in other words, men and women at the same use, the women's effects happen faster, larger. Right. When you look at... But the population of addicts, 
50-50 men, women? Or? No, it is. No, this is actually, when you're looking at the numbers, this is percentages. So if you were to compare men to women equally, which they are not, because addiction is much higher in men, um, certain addictions are much higher in men, uh, that when you compare it number to number evenly, women much faster, much sooner, much harder. Okay? So, um, well, yeah. We're going to take a quick break in a minute. Let me just end with a piece here. There are cultural differences. So one thing to pay attention to is whenever you're reading stuff on addictive behaviors, it's based on Caucasian studies. 89% of addictive research is based on whites. That means it doesn't apply to somebody who's black or Hispanic or Asian and so on, right? So it's important because there's different types of use and different types of issues that affect use culturally. And so what, when I'm providing um, treatment, I try to make sure I'm paying attention to all the cultural variables that are affecting treatment because there is a difference. Um, treatments are often not reflective of the unique experiences of minority groups. Um, you need to separate from your family. Okay, so you can say that to somebody that's white a little bit easier than you can say that to somebody that's Hispanic or Asian. There's just this hugely big difference. Yes, and black. There's, we've got collectivist cultures, and then we've got, and there are, I'm not, and that's even, there are those who grew up in white families that are very collectivist, but it's much, much, much more rare. And so treatment is going to be different for different cultural and racial backgrounds. Did you have your hand up? Yes. <clears throat> I was going to ask, is this the case because um, more whites tend to have um, insurance coverage? So a lot of the minority families don't yes. have a source to be able to get treatment. Yes, so all of the above. The, the socioeconomic status level hugely affects both their background, the abuse levels, their ability to go to treatment, and the, the fact that they walk into treatment and everybody there is white and they're in a group and they're like the one person that's a minority. Yes. Yeah. We don't do that. No. Right. Actually, specifically. Specifically, in the African-American black culture, all of the culture, all the minority of cultures, it's not popular. It is specifically even stronger because of oppression differences and how people get treated uh, when they do go to treatment and if they're people of color. I mean, it hugely affects, you know, I, I, I can't tell you the number of people I've sat with and they've sat in a group and the comments that are made in the group and they're like, and that's not exactly welcoming. So there's reasons for that and understandable reasons, yeah. What about the percentages of therapists? Are they mostly so the percentage of therapists are 90% Caucasian. So you've got, so I actually, when I work with people, um, I will often, I don't always, but I try to as much as possible bring up, so I just want to ask you, I'm white, I'm you're black, I'm obviously not black. So how is that for you? You know, you're Asian. How is that for you? You know, so I actually talk about it pretty openly because sometimes there's feelings of, um, especially with um, uh, Asian cultures, there's a huge respect for, towards anybody who's got a doctorate. And so they won't tell me what they're actually thinking, especially if I do something that's wrong. 
<laughs> you know, that really offends them. So versus somebody from a black culture is going to be a little bit more confrontive usually, right? And there's a little bit more of a defiance to authority. So you, it's, now these are blanket statements. This is not true of every Asian person that walks in my room. But, so what I try to do when I bring it in is this is what I am, this is what you are, let's talk about it. And it's really great because sometimes it will be like five or ten sessions in and they'll bring it up. Because I started the conversation, and they'll say, hey, by the way, you made a comment. <laughs> and I don't know that that's accurate to my experience. But because I started the conversation, now they know they can bring it in. So that's important to see a culturally competent therapist. So, yeah, that's a little hard. That's a lot of things I'm throwing at you on what to look for in a therapist. Okay. Um, treatments often don't aid the building of trust between the family and the therapist. Mm, that's such a problem. Minorities in general mistrust and are less likely to seek out medical care. There you go. Lack of culturally relevant treatment can result in worse treatment outcomes for minority families. So actually things are worse because somebody was not culturally competent. So that's a very important piece. All right. We're going to take a break.